0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 920. To begin this week's program, Dan Zemborski welcomes Renee Deckert, writer at Purple Row, and Brian Kilpatrick, writer at Mile High Sports, to talk about Jeff Breidich leaving the Rockies. It is no secret that the Colorado Rockies have struggled as a franchise for a while, and the trio discuss what the future could look like for the organization now that leadership is changing a bit. They also talk about the legitimacy of the rotation, the Rockies' Twitter tournament, and an endearing fundraiser shirt for a late member of the Rockies Twitter community. Finally, Dan, Renee, and Brian discuss the overwhelming response to the Nolan Arenado trade.
1: And I got to tell you, I've tweeted through DJ LeMayhew's, you know, not being re-signed. I tweeted through the non-tenders of David Dahl and Tony Walters, and there is no comparison to the outpouring that we had on Twitter and in all of our social when the Arenado trade happened.
0: After that, David Lorla welcomes Kyle Glazer of Baseball America and Andrew Leftglass, broadcaster for the Lake County Captains, to discuss the beginning of the minor league season. They start out by talking about adventures and fatherhood a bit, before reflecting on development of players they've seen in the minors, like Zach McKinstry, Shane Bieber, Tristan McKenzie, and James Karinchak. David, Kyle, and Andrew also contemplate the plural Logan Allens, the Zach Gallen, jazz Chisholm trade, and a forever-lost Jacob deGrom interview. Finally, Kyle stresses how players like Jake Cronenworth and others can continue to develop and improve even after they reach the majors.
2: You know, Max Scherzer didn't have an ERA under 3.5 or throw 200 innings until his age 28 season, his sixth in the majors. He didn't become Max Scherzer as we know him today until his sixth season in the major leagues. You know, Guys get better, and, and Jake Cronenworth obviously is not the uh, position player equivalent of Max Scherzer, but... Just the idea that, you know, there's a lot of guys that are kind of thrown into a certain bucket, even at the upper levels of the minors, and they get to the majors, and they just get better.
0: In the final segment, Jay Jaffe welcomes Dan back to discuss the rules being tried out in the now-independent Pioneer League. Jay recently wrote on these experiments, and he wanted to ask Dan about an old tweet of his regarding a home-run derby alternative to extra innings, now known as the knockout rule. The duo go over the pros and cons of this plan, as well as some others being looked at, including moving the mound and allowing batters to call for an appeal on a check swing. Dan also attempts to explain further why he feels the way he does about these changes in the minors versus the majors.
3: I don't want to see, you know, a home run derby or, you know, our current runner on second rule in the majors. As long as I knew that it would stay in the minors, then I'd be like, eh, that's, that's, that's fine. But when it comes to Major League Baseball, I'm protective. I'm like a tiger mom, sure. like protecting her cubs. It's like, no, don't don't mess with the big thing.
0: Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you enjoy what we do at Fangraphs.com and would like to help us keep things going, the best way you can give back is to consider an ad-free membership. They also make a great gift for that baseball fan in your life. Have you checked out the return of the Fangraphs newsletter? Head on over to the homepage to subscribe for our informative summary of what we have going on at the site every weekday. Thank you. Enjoy the show.
3: Charlie and co-owner Dick, to archaic baseball they'd stick. If the team's to perform, they need a reform. Pink slips for themselves double quick. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Dan Zaborski, and this is what I call the Dan Zaborski Untitled Baseball-Related Podcast Segment. And I'm Dan Zaborski, who's mildly likable, occasionally endurable. Today we're going to discuss the Colorado Rockies and their Rocky Mountain Low that sees them in the basement of the NL West and after Monday's resignation without Jeff British, their Executive Vice President and General Manager since 2014. To join me, seeing if we look into this void and the void looks back at you, we have two terrific guests who regularly write and suffer the Rockies. Renee Deckard is the staff writer for Purple Row and runs the Rockies Pitch, which can be found at rockiespitch.substack.com. Brian Kilpatrick covers the Rockies for Mile High Sports and is responsible for totally hurting my feelings by not sneaking me into the Rockies Twitter tournament, despite all the nice things I say about the Rockies. Welcome to the podcast, guys.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
3: Yes, absolutely. I'm glad
4: to be here. And I'm really sorry that I didn't pick you for the tournament, but you know how it is. Well, you
3: see, I'm a writer, which means I have a very fragile ego. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, guys, the big news today is Jeff British's departure. So we'll start with that. And I kind of want to get some initial reactions. Renee, I'll start with you. When you first heard that British, air quote, resigned, and air quote, what were the first thoughts that went through your head?
1: so you know initially there's just this oversense this overwhelming sense of relief right it's like oh my gosh our long national nightmare is over (laughs) and then about 30 seconds later i realized that dick monfort still owned the rockies and so probably it didn't actually mean anything and so but i will say this it has i have found that my rockies fandom this year has required a lot of like emotional processing time the aeronauto trade was sort of a big thing to get through and now we've got this and i've just decided it's 2021 and crazy things are going to happen and so here we are
3: and what about you brian did you have that same moment of catharsis followed by the immediate return of of the gloom or or how did how did you feel about the whole situation
4: my first thought was uh there was this guy who was tweeting at Purple Row the day before that, saying that he heard from one of Dick Monfort's buddies that Jeff Brodich was going to be gone after that game, and he was right. It was incredible. That was my first thought. Then after that, uh, yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the guy who is immediately just going to start saying things like, "Oh well, yeah, nothing's going to change," but at the same time. When I saw who the Rockies promoted to the team president position, I was just like, "Oh yeah, this just this just means that Dick Monfort's
3: going to uh, put more of his focus on the baseball side, and that can't be good." Well, I mean, one of the the beliefs about Monfort is that he believes that he's Billy Bean. That's something I've heard from multiple people in in recent months, which is kind of an unearned personal appellation, I think. What do you think, Renee? Do you think he's Billy Bean?
1: you know um with all due respect i I don't think that i assume probably we'll talk a little bit later about analytics but one of the the areas at which i think the franchise has really failed is with the lack of emphasis on analytics and a failure to really think creatively about coors field and to systematically come up a way with a way to weaponize it for the Rockies, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna respectfully punt on the the Billy Bean
3: accolade. <laughs> I am always fascinated by the issue of Coors Field because, as as someone who does a lot of work in analytics, I like to have interesting problems to solve. And the thing about Coors Field is, it is a very interesting problem. And to an extent, even if they kind of haven't figured out how to have the whole offense thing they have actually found some decent starting pitching. Brian, how do you feel about the rotation? Do you think that it's a fluke that they've had some success? Or do you think that they've found something there that can at least, you know, bend the curve a little so they can succeed just a little bit better at Coors Field? No,
4: that's not a fluke at all. I mean, we're going on, what, five years of them having mostly, other than I think 2019, they were really bad because of, various things but we're going on five years of them having a really solid rotation and it's mostly the same guys so definitely not a fluke i mean they they walk a lot of batters but at least you know a handful of the guys in the rotation this year kind of strike out enough to to at least partially make up for it and then you know yes they yield a ton of contact but they get a ton of ground balls and the rockies have a ridiculously good infield defense even without nolan arenado and so They've kind of figured out a way to, to, to play to their strengths there a little bit. You know, the offense is a different story. I'm sure you'll get into it, but the rotation's definitely not a fluke. I don't think it's like this recipe for success they've found necessarily, but, you know, they place a lot of emphasis in like an a organizational pitching philosophy, and it starts at the top with Mark Wiley pretty much ever since they put this current system in place to where they have a, you know, a director of pitching operations and they have this whole, you know, organizational pitching philosophy is really where they started to turn a corner. And if nothing else, be able to mix and match different types of starting pitchers with
3: different strengths and still get the same, mostly good results across the board. Maybe it's just me, but it feels like they've had more success this season, at least so far. And I guess, in part of 2020, and actually finding relief pictures, which has kind of been one of the down things about the whole British era, simply because they spent a lot of money on relievers that didn't do anything. Uh, But to give Daniel Bard a chance, that actually showed a lot more imagination than I would have expected from the team. And, you know, Bard, Robert Stevenson, Michael Givens, I feel kind of better about this bullpen than past bullpens. So, do we do do we have some shoots of of hope there? Some optimism? Could this be the start of the Rockies having kind of a bullpen which is a little more like the Rays than just you know an overpaid mess?
1: So I think that the fact that they're bringing Ben Bowden up is really a pretty hopeful thing for them. Yency Almonte can be really good. That we haven't seen that happen yet this year. I have to say I I grew up on a farm. And I've come to think of the Rockies sort of acquisition of players over the last two years as sort of farmers who hit farm sales and they hope to find those gems that nobody else knows so that they can, they can put them to work. And for me, Daniel Bard, while a great story, sort of falls into that reclamation project kind of mentality. On the other hand, it's, it's a lot better than paying what they've paid for some of the relievers they've had. So I'm good with this approach for now.
3: I wrote a piece today uh, about, the, about the Rockies and, and Jeff Breidich's era in, in Colorado, and when summing up the war, I got about $300 million for something like negative two war. Do either of you remember any stretch of free agency that has just gone this poorly? I mean, there have been teams that have done made some pretty terrible signings. Like I don't think the Albert Pujols signing was ever going to work out or the Ryan Howard one, but this seems to be on all levels consistently just poor decisions and some poor luck. And it just amazes me watching how much money has literally been spent for almost nothing to show for it on the field.
4: Well, none of those relievers they signed Maybe Wade Davis, I guess you could argue that. But even his his last year with the Cubs, there were a lot of red flags there. But none of those relievers they signed were like the type of elite relievers that you spend money on. Like To me, the way to do it with a bullpen is if you can spend money on elite relievers who are proven to be elite and have elite skill sets and elite bat-missing abilities, uh, etc., other than that, you need to be building your bullpen with like failed starters or uh, kind of high high risk, high reward guys coming up through your organization or reclamation projects. The Rockies have always been good with the reclamation projects. That goes way back to Dan O'Dowd even, and, and po- probably even before that. But they've never spent the, the large amounts
3: of money that they give to these relievers on the right types of relievers. Now, a question that I'll just put out there is we can't, we probably can't talk about you know, British quote unquote resigning without talking about the Nolan Arenado trade, even if in the long term it isn't hugely consequential and, and, and things work out. It's one of those moments in a team's history that no matter how you felt about it, you're going to remember it in 30 years. I can think of when I think of the Orioles 30 years ago, I still remember you know, every pitch of that last series against the Blue Jays where Greg Olson threw a wild pitch and they lost the last weekend to the Blue Jays. And I still remember that as a big deal in my Orioles fandom. Is the Nolan Arenado trade, is the whole affair that there was a trade or that there was a trade that was handled in what I would say is the most hand-handed manner that I could imagine. Do you think that there could have been a good Nolan Arenado trade?
1: So I'm going to kick this one over to Brian because Brian did a really good tweet about this last night. And I'd like to hear him elaborate on that a little bit.
4: Here's the deal on that, Dan. Thanks Renee. Cause I, you know, I, it is still pretty fresh in my mind is the trade of Nolan Arenado was not necessarily a bad thing. The trade itself Someone said on the Rockies broadcast yesterday that, I think it was Drew Goodman, said, you know, it was a business move. And I get that it was a business move. The issue is, I don't think they should have extended him in the first place. And so if you were going to trade him, you should have done it before then, probably would have gotten a lot better of a return. Because the issue is, they signed him to this extension, you know, I mean, that much money is automatically going to lessen your leverage in a deal. Then they included that opt-out, which lessens the leverage even more. Then they allowed for this culture where Brightish was, you know, able to just alienate him and everyone knew it. Everyone knew he was no longer happy with the Rockies. That lessens your leverage even more. So the trade itself wasn't bad, but all the circumstances leading up to it to where they gave themselves no leverage was terrible. But then, you know, in my opinion, they... Probably shouldn't have extended him in the first place. And Dan, I'm not so sure that the Rockies should ever give long-term, you know, deals, especially big money ones to anybody considering like the entire history of the organization and its players not holding up, not being able to hold up long-term in that environment. We've seen it over and over with guys wearing down probably way earlier than they would if they played literally anywhere else. We saw it with... Todd Helton, Tulo, Larry Walker, even to some degree, Ubaldo Jimenez, Carlos Gonzalez, et cetera, et cetera. We're kind of seeing it with Charlie Blackman now, even though he, he is kind of getting to the point where he's over the hill in baseball years anyway. But it's it probably just isn't a good idea for the Rockies to to give big money and, and, and multi-year, you know, seven, eight, nine-year deals out to anybody because of just how hard it is to to stay in elite playing shape, playing in the environment that they have to play in.
3: Now, if it had been Fernando Tatis Jr., could I have changed your tune? Well, <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, he's a lot okay, younger. I, I wanted to so. give you something very alluring <laughs> and try to see if I could check, if I could lure you off that position. You made me hesitate, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> I, I think for me, uh, the one of the problems uh, with Bright H and the whole situation with Arenado is he talked about i mean we've we've seen the quotes of him talking about leadership you know and of course snarky remarks from people like me talking about his his brain surgery education and he talks about leadership and leading a team and and those kinds of kind of non-analytical things and i kind of had this idea that if you're going to talk about non-analytical things and and say it's so much better than that, you should be probably pretty good at the non-analytical things. I'm not saying that I'd be the best communicator with Arenado, but having someone who's not a stat nerd talking with players like Arenado, this is kind of like one of the purposes of having that, that they're supposed to be able to lead a team better than this. And the messaging was just terrible, both for the player, Arenado and for the fandom itself, because I can't imagine anybody, anybody in Rocky's fandom is, is happier with how things turned out. Now, Renee, uh, we talked briefly about the whole kind of philosophical concept of fandom and how teams relate to their fans. How do the Rockies start to repair the relationship with their fan base? Because it seems incredibly damaged right now. And that's a problem for a team that has generally had good support when they've won games.
1: So I think that's a really important question. And one of the things that I do on Purple Row, besides be a staff writer, is I do a lot of tweeting from the site account and I gotta tell you, I've tweeted through DJ LeMayhews, you know, not being re signed. I tweeted through the non-tenders of David Dahl and Tony Walters, and there is no comparison to the outpouring that we had on Twitter and in all of our social when the Arenado trade happened. There was anger that it had happened from one side, there was anger from another side that it had been such a bad trade. And my understanding is from what i've read that the rockies were just utterly stunned that this trade was received so negatively you know and i wanted to say have you looked at your own pr right the brochure that they put together to sell condos in mcgregor square features nolan arenado's walk-off on a video screen that people are watching and i have I keep a lot of Rocky's media on my iPad because I use it whenever I'm tweeting. I'm worried if I'm ever arrested by the police, they're gonna think I'm a stalker or something, right? <laughs> but I have a terrific amount of Arenado stuff and it's because it's all so good. And he was so good and they marketed him so well. I've got, I've got Arenado whenever he's, you know, they've dressed him up with Charlie Blackman as the brothers and all of that stuff. And that was an engine they built. They had a player who was a generational player that fans really liked. They marketed him in a way that made fans attached to him. He, and, and he doesn't do social media, right? So he's this great cypher. Nobody really knows what's going on with Nolan Arenado. And then the Rockies don't get why fans said, we're not okay with this. And in the wake of, of the, the brain surgeon comments, whenever that relationship began to be damaged and the Rockies didn't act in any kind of proactive way to fix it. So it's a real problem. I think it's significant. Thomas Harding had a piece out today and he says repairing the relationship with fans is something the Rockies are gonna have to do. And, and after I had thought about the Breitich resignation yesterday, I thought, is this just fan service, right? Is this, is I mean, is it fan service? Obviously, there's some stuff going on in the office that we don't know about, but is this just an attempt to tell fans, fine. You wanted a president, you got a president. You wanted Brightich gone, Brightich is gone. Now, come come to, come to Coors Field. And I, I'll add one other thing. I think there's some element of sort of trying to clean up the house before the All-Star game. Because the All-Star game, the Brightich or not a relationship was always gonna be a big distraction, right? Well, that's done now, so. And
4: I was, I was going to piggyback onto something you said earlier there, um, which is how the Rockies were just utterly blindsided by the reaction to the trade, because it, it, this is how insular they are. And, and you guys, you both know this, like they only have their own experiences to use as a basis for comparison. So, you know, I was told by people who who close enough to the situation anyway that they expected that the reaction to the r and auto trade would be similar to the reaction to the troy Tulowitzki trade now when that trade happened you had a lot more it was way more 50 50 in terms of like you know a lot of fans didn't like Tulowitzki because he didn't sign autographs and he was kind of cold to people and this and that and blah 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 but then also you know they had come off so many years of losing and they had trevor story coming up through the pipeline and You know, there were rumors of, long-standing rumors of Tulewitzki being a clubhouse canter. So, you know, a lot of people, that that trade didn't get roundly panned like the Arenado one did, and they kind of thought that this was going to be the same thing, and you could kind of see some of that same groundwork being laid leading up to it in terms of, you know, trying to make Arenado the bad guy, and uh, that just really backfired.
1: And, you know, Brian, I would add one more thing, and I think it's appropriate to say this to you since you're the, the Rockies' Twitter tournament guy. Um, <laughs> hmm. The, Tula Whiskey, the Tula Whiskey trade happened before Rockies fandom had organized itself on social media. And I think that mattered. I think that fans were able to organize, fire Brightage and sell the team hashtags and there were t-shirts and stuff. And I just don't think that kind of social infrastructure existed whenever the last trade happened. And I think the Rockies were really surprised by that. And so it was really interesting on the broadcast last night at three separate times in the broadcast from three separate people, they were talking about social media and the pressure it created. And I don't believe that social media got Jeff Breidich to resign, but I do think it kept the pressure on an organization that was just stunned by what had happened.
3: That's a really good point. As as someone who's kind of an outside observer to this, because I pay attention to the Rockies, but as a national writer, I had to pay attention to a lot of things. There's been a a noted change in how the conversation has gone in recent years. I've always been known as a pretty tough critic on 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 this edition of the Rockies, uh, and I've been kind of saying a lot of the same things since you know 2014 2015. The the theme I used to hit on a lot was that I felt that when the Rockies would get success with their the budding start developed in-house is that success would be short-lived because there was no real goal, no real plan that was put together in any, you know, recognizable manner and it would just be they would fade off quickly. And that's that's kind of what happened. And as the years have gone, I've noticed a few things. First, that fans of the Rockies tend to be less angry at me than they used to be. When I used to, you know, make, because I do a lot of kind of snarky photoshops with the Rockies or jokes or neural network games just because it, it amuses me. I'm I'm not a super nice person sometimes. Uh, there used to be a lot of pushback from people. And now when a lot of times when I'm on the Rockies for kind of the same things that I've been on them, people are like, thanks, Dan, for saying that. And I'm like, okay, so you guys don't hate me anymore? That's kind of cool. Yeah, and there's there's two things that happened that led to that,
4: because I know exactly what you're talking about, and I can think of certain exact people who really disliked what you had to say a couple of years ago and are totally on board with what you have to say now, and and two things happened. It's it, it, The first thing is that the Rockies did not make any sort of effort to upgrade the team down the stretch in 2018, and they cost themselves a division title in the process. Had they made moves even like the ones they made the year before when they acquired, uh, Pat Neshek and Jonathan Lucroy at the deadline, they probably would have won the division. And then the second thing was just down the stretch in 2019 when, uh, it started to become clear that Jeff Brydish was, uh, beginning to alienate Nolan Arenado and making all kinds of snarky comments and the, the brain surgeon thing, which actually happened earlier in 2019. <laughs> those all played a part, um, in, people realizing that, oh yeah, maybe, uh, maybe things aren't going so well with this team. And, uh, we probably should have saw the signs of it a couple of years prior.
1: And I would add to, to what Brian has said, Dan, I think people were brought over to your way of seeing things because you were proven true. And the interesting thing to me about the piece in the athletic that Ken Rosenthal and Nick Grok wrote was that all of the pieces put together, and I'll ask Brian about there was really nothing there, if you're a Rockies fan, that you didn't know. Okay, nobody knew that the front office people were working as clubbies. I got to give you that. Nobody I didn't
3: know that either. That was, yeah, that
1: was a surprise. I didn't know that
3: either. Yeah,
4: No one but told if, me that
3: part.
1: <laughs> I mean, the first person, I think Hayden Ringer was the first person to really put together that negative war and how much it cost. I mean, there were all kinds of topics in here that had been treated piecemeal in various articles and in Denver-based journalists. But what Rosenthal and Grope did is they put it all together. So it wasn't just spots. It became a really cohesive indictment of what was going on. As I read it, I thought, none of this is really new to me. But when I see it all put together, and when it's backed up with reporting like this, it is a comprehensive picture of an organizational failure. Yeah, they were not
3: covering rumors. They have good sources. I was aware of the analytics staff leaving uh, pretty quickly uh, because I do talk to analytics people. Nobody told me about the clubby thing, probably because there's no way I wouldn't have been able. To, I would have been able to resist writing about that because it's it's pretty shocking.
4: Like Renee said, all of that stuff was put together in that manner and reported on so well, and then just given that platform. I mean, Ken Rosenthal is. You know, along with Jeff Passan, they're like, they're MLB's Woj, basically. And so that's, you know, that's a huge platform. And so anyone who didn't already know most of that stuff in there, they definitely knew it at that point. And one of the biggest things that kind of got reported in there and kind of elsewhere, but never was really brought to the forefront in any of these pieces, probably because it's, you know, hasn't been able to be truly substantiated as too much more than a rumor, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, is... A near physical confrontation between Brightish and Nolan Arenado that occurred after the 2019 season that that really set things in a direction that that we've that we've seen manifest now in uh, in the trade and Brightish's firing and all that. It's just so unfortunate that the Rockies didn't make this move a year and a half ago when they very well could have.
3: Now, I'm going to do something very cruel as a projection guy. I'm going to ask both of you for a projection, but it's not a very serious projection, so it doesn't necessarily have to be right. Before last season, uh, Dick Monfort furiously predicted through, quote-unquote, interpolation, that the Rockies would win 94 games. They didn't, of course. If we start on opening day 2021, on what day and year... From opening day 2021, will the Rockies win their 94th game? (laughs) I'm going to go.
4: I'm going to go May 21st, 2022. Okay, May 21st. (laughs)
1: Okay. <laughs> um, so I have to be a little more optimistic or I just can't handle the world. So I'm gonna say that they're gonna pull that off on the first of May in twenty twenty two.
3: Okay, May Day. So that, that 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 would be fun. That means I guess they could win you know, seventy two this year, have a good April next year. That that's it's it's possible.
1: All right. Now yours, Dan, you have to do it as well.
3: Oh see, I have to give the most negative one probably. Let's see. I have a sixty five this year. That's about right. We'll say 40 percent of the season next year i'm gonna say my birthday june 19th 2022 because then i can make jokes about it on my birthday and that would be a great birthday present because any any way i can make some snark or some sarcastic comment it brightens my day well tan we just want you to be happy (laughs) well if i was happy then why didn't brian put me in the twitter tourney well, you know, I got past the first round a few years ago, too. Yes, you did.
4: Grant, I think I strategically put you in a place where I knew you would beat Tracy Ringlesby in the first round. So that's, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, of
3: seeding strategy in play there. See, we, we need an NIT. Uh, that came up. <laughs> the, the, the others. It's like the alternate site when they talk about Zaborski has been seeded to the alternate site. Uh, because that <laughs> that is my favorite terminology to come out of the COVID year because it sounds almost like a dark euphemism like like something from Soylent Green it's like he's been sent to the alternate site.
1: <laughs> oh my
4: gosh, it's totally fitting for the times too. So it's yeah,
1: yeah. You know, l- let me let me just throw in an anecdote that. I hope we'll tell you something about this community and its understanding of Twitter, and it may or may not be useful to you in this conversation. We discovered that a member, a long-term member of our community, Ryan Bloom, passed away suddenly. And when did we find this out, Brian? In early April? Uh,
4: yeah. His wife, so. his wife
1: took to Twitter and she told us that it had happened. And Brian was important to us because some of the greatest memes that we have he created and he has the distinction of being one person we know who interviewed for an analytics job with the Rockies. So he had the actual inside scoop. And one of the last things he did before he passed away is he created a t shirt design. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like, it's terrific. And it says, Oh, gosh. What's the logo, Brian? It
4: says Department of Analytics and Laundry. And yes. Laundry.
1: <laughs> and Tyler Mon has a t-shirt company. We had his design and his name put on t-shirts. They sold really well. We raised money for the family. And you know what? It's just a coda for everything that's going on.
3: That That's, that's a great little anecdote. It's cool to see the fandom do those things. I remember uh, some years ago, uh, there was a Braves blogger named Mac Thomason. Who had testicular cancer? Very young, he was in his late 30s, uh, and he he passed away. And the Braves blogosphere at the time really kind of got together and did things for him, and they donated money in his name and and all sorts of things. And it that that warms my cynical heart to see that kind of thing.
1: It's really interesting, just giving how important he was to this community. I mean, it's a memorial that we wear for him, right? And it encapsulates his creativity and his humor. And it's just a pretty awesome part of being in this community.
3: Unfortunately, we're out of time to discuss this maddening and fascinating team. Make sure to check out Purple Row, Rocky's Pitch, Mile High Sports, and on Twitter, 307 Renee, that's two E's, and Rocky Mountain BK to check out more of the work of our guests. Until we meet again for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Dan Zaborski.
5: Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. The minor league baseball season is set to start this coming Tuesday. And with that in mind, today's guests are two people who know a lot about prospects and about the minor league scene in general. Kyle Glazer is a national writer for Baseball America. Andrew Luffglass is the radio voice of Cleveland's High A affiliate, the Lake County Captains. Gents, thanks for coming on to, uh, to Fangraph's audio.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks
6: for having me, David.
5: Yeah, before we talk baseball, uh, and we are going to include some big league stuff as well, not just just prospects, we should start by congratulating Kyle on becoming a new father just very recently.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you. She's a month old, or just under a month old, so plenty of new adventures. Uh, I mentioned to you guys before we started, I've already been pooped on this morning, so... Definitely uh, getting used to being a new father, but we're enjoying it. The good news is she's sleeping pretty well. So my wife and I still feel like we have our sanity. So that's always a positive, uh, but it's exciting times and we're definitely enjoying uh, all the new adventures that parenthood brings.
5: Yes. And Andrew, I believe that you have experienced the being pooped on already. I think you have a youngster, maybe a future
6: big leaguer in the house as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I have an 18-month-old daughter that I've been taking care of. The the timing for something so awful as the pandemic was um, worked out at least okay for us in terms of I got to be a stay-at-home dad for pretty much her entire life. And uh, yeah, Kyle, you you haven't lived until you have not only been pooped on, but had to clean up entire outfit and a swing and whatever else was around around okay. your child as well. This is probably page one, chapter one of the poop chronicles for you. <laughs> Good to know. I'll <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Yes, And with that, let's segue into baseball. Kyle, you are on the West Coast. Among the several chapters that you wrote in this year's BA Prospect Handbooks were the Dodgers and Padres. One player I'm especially interested in from that list is somebody who didn't rank particularly high, but is off to a pretty good start in the big leagues, and that is Zach
4: McKinstry.
2: Yeah, so I actually ranked McKinstry 11th in the Dodgers system this year. And keep in mind, the Dodgers are a top 10 system. So he would have been top 10 in some other team systems. I actually had him in the top 10 in some earlier iterations of the Dodgers uh, rankings. But uh, after discussing a couple other guys with some evaluators, I said there were some other guys that felt had higher ceilings. But it was very, very clear this guy is a really good player that people were overlooking. Kind of in the Jake Cronenworth and Tommy Edmund mold, people see you know, a middle infield versatile type who's not the biggest guy, doesn't have the greatest draft pedigree, but he's always performed. And what really stood out to me about him was during the 2019 season at AAA Oklahoma City, Gavin Lux was going off. He began that year at A, finished there in AAA, was our minor league player of the year at Baseball America. And in the course of speaking to coaches around the league, including the Dodgers manager, Travis Barbary, ran through all the guys on that team, Gavin Lux included. And at the very end of our conversation, he said, keep an eye on Zach McKinstry. Look at his numbers compared to Gavin Lux's since he came up. He's been unbelievable. Left-handed hitter, could play everywhere. He's gone under the radar, but plays so many positions, left-handed bat, lots of extra base hits, uses the whole field, lots of hard contact. It was one one of those things where, If you just kind of look at the names it might jump out at you, but you look at the actual production, he was performing at a level with a lot of the guys who are considered, you know, quote-unquote top prospects. So I ranked him that year. Then last year at the alternate site, he really opened eyes, made his major league debut. And it was pretty clear once the Dodgers let Kike Hernandez walk this offseason, this was going to be their utility guy. I wrote that explicitly in the prospect handbook write-up. And I'm not surprised to see he's doing well. Now, is he going to hit over 300 for his entire career probably not but you talk to a lot of people in the Dodgers organization and those of us that have been watching him it's not a huge surprise that he's a productive member of this team and and he should be continuing you know now until at least the next few years and he can certainly
5: hit the Indians are basically a pitching factory and I am guilty here of not looking up where any of these pitchers actually did rank, either at Fangraphs or at Baseball America. But former players there: Shane Bieber, Aaron Savali, Zach Polisak, James Karinchek, Kyle Nelson. You know, we're all in Lake Lake County. Do you remember anything prospect-wise about them, Andrew? About them maybe being better than the national outlook was?
6: Yeah, so I guess the first one you mentioned, and that's top of most people's minds, would be Shane Bieber. And to clarify, we only had Shane for a month. He (laughs) proved his way out of what was then low A pretty quickly. He had five starts with the captains. And what jumped out initially was this guy throws a lot of strikes. I mean, we we saw at his numbers in college that he was going to be a strike thrower, and whether or not he was striking people out, he wasn't going to walk anybody. And when you see a guy like that doing that at low A, at least Kyle, you can probably speak to this too, you wonder after he's doing that for a month or two and then gets called up, is is he really that good or is he just dominating that level strictly because he's able to fill the strike zone? Um so I thought he was pretty good when we had him in Lake County, but it was it was hard to tell whether or not it was gonna play at the next level. And and obviously uh it it, it did. Uh, My understanding is a big part of his development starting that year, he was with Lake County at start of 2017, was the development of that nasty curveball that he had. He apparently started working on that a month or two before he came to the captain's. He was working on it in spring training with uh, pitching coach Jason Blanton, who was his pitching coach there, and Ruben Niebla, who at the time was the uh, minor league pitching coordinator for Cleveland. Uh, And really, it it all started for him with that curveball in that spring training 2017, but he was barely throwing it in games at the start. He was fastball changeup, slider, I believe, at the time. And when that curveball took off, when he got a feel for it, it, it really took off for him. The other guy that you mentioned that I think, I think a lot about is Kyle Nelson. Kyle got his big league debut end of last year, and I believe he just got recalled to the big league club this past week. He's a lefty and has a wipeout slider. And when I remember about his time with Lake County in 2018 is talking to Uh, our pitching coach that year, Joe Torres, about how he was trying to manipulate the slider. So he had a short one and a long one. We had this game in Lansing one time after I had that conversation with Joe, where Kyle's slider was so nasty. He was going back foot to righties and making him spin into the dirt. And I talked to a scout after who was saying, I haven't been excited to write up anybody Pretty much in this league all year so far, but I can't wait to go home and write up Kyle Nelson's slider, which apparently he told me later in the year he modeled after the slider of Andrew Miller, which I found out when he got to, you know, share a bullpen with Miller when he was rehabbing with the captains later that year.
5: Andrew Miller, having been a guest on Fangrass Audio just this past November, as a matter of fact. You did not mention, interestingly, talking about breaking balls James James Karinchak, who has got got a real hammer. I don't know if either of the two you want to weigh on on his rise to the big leagues.
2: Sure, yeah, with Karenchak, there was really, really a strong sense, especially spring training last year that his curveball was a special pitch that was really going to help separate him in the major leagues and help him become that special late-inning type of arm. And, and now we've seen a guy who can pitch at the end of games for a first division team. And there's an interesting breaking ball discussion to to have with this. Um, you know, Andrew mentioned Shane Bieber's curveball and what it's become. And it's funny, I actually had a discussion with a high-level evaluator yesterday Uh, Both Bieber and Nelson came out of UC Santa Barbara, which has become kind of a a pitching factor out here on the West Coast. And they have another pitcher, Michael McGreevy, this year who projects to go very, very high. We actually mocked him to the Indians in the first round in our latest mock draft. They love those UCSB pitchers. But naturally, there's comparisons being drawn from McGreevy to Bieber, UCSB right-handers who throw a ton of strikes. And one of the things one of the evaluators mentioned was at UCSB, Shane Bieber did not have a breaking ball. It was not a very good pitch. Going back and looking through old draft reports, it was a fringe average pitch in our draft write-up, and some of the evaluators I talked to said they thought it was even worse than that. And he just took such jumps in player development, and that development of that secondary stuff I think is something that we see so often in player development. There's a lot of focus on velocity and helping guys throw harder, and that's obviously very important. Shane Bieber absolutely has done that too. But I think the breaking ball development, I mean, the breaking ball in a lot of evaluators' eyes, that's what separates Karinchak. The breaking ball development in Bieber, that's what really helped make him uh, the guy he's become. That's been as big of a jump as the velocity he's taken. And then Kyle Nelson, uh, I actually wrote up his draft report out of UCSB. His breaking ball was something people thought was absolutely lights out. Even as a draft prospect, his slider I wrote about, it was special immediately out of the draft, and he's been able to ride that to the big league. So I think there's an interesting story here about the breaking ball development, and specifically to Cleveland, that's something that has helped separate these guys a little bit.
5: Sticking with, with you, Kyle, uh, you wrote a, about uh, Luis Patino, of course, in the, you know, the Padres uh, list. He's no longer a Padre. How excited should the Tampa Bay Rays be about the player that they got for Blake Snell?
2: Very, very excited. It's explosive stuff. It's a crazy fast arm. He's got a power slider. He's a young guy who's still learning to harness this velocity. And what's funny about Luis Patino is he wasn't really a big prospect type. Uh, Padres international scouting director Chris Kemp saw him throw a bullpen. He was a shortstop in Colombia for a lot of his youth. He threw a bullpen in between a double header showcase. And he was 84 to 86, maybe weighed 150 pounds soaking wet, but saw good arm action. You saw some athleticism. They signed him kind of as a flyer almost. And even they were amazed how he put on 40 pounds, gained 10 miles an hour of velocity. He's exciting. He's electric. He's the type of guy that... You know, he's going to raise the energy level in the stadium. Now, he still needs to work on his strike throwing, but we see that with a lot of guys who are really young, came into velocity quickly, and are still learning to harness it. I will say the other aspect of Luis Patino that Rays fans are going to love, uh, this kid is just awesome. It's kind of an effervescent personality, high energy, constantly talking. He's very smart. He's nearly fluent in English. He's a guy who you just love being around. And it's funny, when he was at Lake Elsinore, his pitching coach, Pete Zamora at the time, gave him the nickname Chewy. Because his mouth was always open. He was just talking and yakking it up with fans, with players, with coaches in a positive way. So the combination of the stuff and the personality, he's the type of guy who can be a fan favorite. He's just a young pitcher still learning to harness all his power and throw strikes in the major leagues. But he's shown the ability to do it in the minors. And I think as he matures, we'll see him become a guy who is a mid to potential front of the rotation starter in the major leagues.
5: Andrew, you have some exciting players coming to Lake County this summer. Indians, of course, haven't released, or at least not to my knowledge, haven't actually made assignments yet. But who are some of the players that you expect to see and are excited about?
6: I think the top two people that I'm, I guess, excited about, the top two rated prospects that we're expecting to be with the captains are George Valera and Brian Rocchio. So uh, both 20 years old, and that's kind of a theme from the guys that we're told to kind of anticipate be with the captains this year is a lot of 20-year-old guys, some guys from that uh, vaunted 2017 Cleveland international free agent class. Uh, But Valera, 20-year-old outfielder who we saw very briefly – at the end of the 2019 season, he's rated, I believe Eric has him at your Fangraphs list at, at number three. I'm not sure where you guys had him, uh, Kyle, but uh, explosive swing generates a lot of power. And obviously we haven't seen him in a while and I haven't seen him since 2019, but the videos coming out of Arizona and coming out of his at-home training sessions are are really impressive to see that big, powerful swing and how the ball jumps off his bat and the other guy is another 20 year old this is an infielder shortstop Brian Rocchio, who he's number 4 on Fangraphs list and and I thought it was I thought it was interesting the last few years to see how much big league spring training time That they gave him noted in the fangraphs write up about him. He hasn't been able to, or wasn't able to, during the pandemic, get any work in the States. He wasn't at the alt site or um, at Instructs because of travel restrictions from Venezuela. So I'm interested to see how he comes back, uh, what he looks like. The thing with Rokio that I remember seeing was a lot of power in a small frame. He's what listed as five nine five ten, uh, and I saw him last spring training hit an opposite field home run at at Goodyear off Zach Gallen before the shutdown. So uh, a lot of guys who are young who are anticipating having on this captain's roster a lot of twenty year old twenty uh, year old guys with a lot of upside Valero, Rocchio, potentially guys like Aaron Bracho Jose Tena kind of filling what we've. Kind of fulfilling what we've come used to with this Cleveland system, with a lot of young shortstops who can hit. I mean, Rocchio, Bracho, and Tana are all 20-year-old shortstops, and we're expecting to to possibly have all three at one time, which will be interesting from a playing time perspective and how they ship those guys around the infield.
5: And you could very well have recent draft pick Logan Allen as well, who exists, I think, mostly to confuse people with having two Logan Allens.
6: <laughs> yeah, you don't even get a break that there's, they're both left handed pitchers. So you don't even get a break that one could be a right handed pitcher, or play another position. I guess the differentiator with this Logan Allen would be that he was a two way player at Florida International. So he played some first base as well. But I, I don't think we'll quite see that here.
5: And Jake Cronenworth is, of course, is, was, I'm not sure what the correct answer is because he actually did <laughs> pitch recently, was a two way player. Kyle, you probably know quite a lot about Jake.
2: Yeah, so I first saw Jake in 2019 at AAA Durham, and that was the year they started experimenting with him on the mound as an opener a little bit. And he was actually up to 96, 97. He he was really bringing it. He had pitched a little bit in college. And when the Padres acquired him, they definitely thought of him as a guy who could potentially be kind of a two-way guy with him. You'll remember that was the offseason Major League Baseball rolled out the rules about two-way players, how they could be used. It was going to be a little more difficult in the National League, but it was something the Padres definitely were interested in. And then he came out and frankly surprised even them as, oh, this isn't a utility guy. This actually is our everyday second baseman. Um, This is another example of a guy who has really exceeded expectations. Going back and looking through the notes we had on him in 2019 at Durham, uh, my own personal notes as well as scouts, it was, hey, This guy's solid. He makes the plays, you know, good instincts and feel for the strike zone, you know, kind of a bottom of the order bat. You know, maybe he's a utility guy on a first division team, starts on a second division team, singles, doubles type, you know, a a nice player. But what he's become in the major leagues has been something completely different. And it's a testament to. Guys get better. Guys get better in the major leagues. Development doesn't stop as soon as they get there. I think my all-time favorite example of that, and you know, this is a pitcher, but you know, Max Scherzer didn't have an ERA under three five or throw two hundred innings until his age twenty-eight season, his sixth in the majors. He didn't become Max Scherzer as we know him today until his sixth season in the major leagues. You know, guys get better, and and Jake Cronenworth obviously is not the uh, position player equivalent of Max Scherzer, but just the idea that, you know, there's a lot of guys that are kind of thrown into a certain bucket, even at the upper levels of the minors, and they get to the majors and they just get better.
5: Yeah, I think readers at some point should look up what John Smoltz's earned run average and one lost record was when he got traded from the low minors for, for Doyle Alexander back in the day. I think you'll be surprised at, at just how bad he was. We have time just for a few more things here. Let's bounce back to you, Andrew. And again, I didn't really do my homework.
6: Was Tristan McKenzie with your club? Yeah, he was uh, in 2016. I feel like a theme is that we have a lot of these guys who get up to the big leagues and do well at the big leagues. We don't have them very long. We had Tristan at the tail end of the 2016 season. I believe he was a nineteen year old at the time. Um and it was inter- it's interesting, I guess, to go back and think about what we what we thought about Tristan at the time because he we thought, oh, this is a big lanky right-hander with a big fastball. He was doing a, a nice job of throwing his fastball up in the zone. And the thought process was, as I think a lot of people thought, Will he put on weight? Is he going to be durable with that frame? And, and of course, unfortunately, Tristan had some, some injury issues the last couple of years. But it's been fun to see what he's been able to do, not only coming back from those injuries, but immediately coming back and excelling at the major league level. But it, it, it looks a lot like the guy we saw in 2016, to be to be honest with you, with a, a fastball that he's throwing up in the zone, top of the zone, even above the zone, and a breaking ball that starts out of the same slot and drops precipitously below the knees. And so speaking of breaking balls, Kyle, just to backtrack a little bit, I'm curious about overall in the game, breaking ball development as you see it, because in my conversations with pitchers and pitching coaches, at least in Cleveland's organization, I'm hearing a lot about guys switching to a spike curveball. Are you seeing a an uptick in guys using a spike or knuckle curve? As I understand it, the reason that guys are changing to that is because it gives them a more true curveball shape. The second finger doesn't get in the way and it avoids the the tendency for that curve to get slurvy.
2: Yeah, there definitely has been a slight uptick. For a while spike curveballs were almost exclusively pitches thrown in college. And then as soon as they got into Pro Ball pro development. For a long time, they wanted guys to develop a slider, and they kind of ditched the spike curveball. But now, as we've seen the game trend more toward this north-south profile, fastball up, curveball down, we're starting to see a lot more curveballs in the majors. And as you've mentioned, I have noticed the more recent trend is, hey, let's utilize a spike curveball a little more. Now, I would say it's pretty recent. I really have only started to hear this within the last year plus, I'd say. So we need to see where it goes. But yeah, there's no question. There's there's more talk about it now in the pro game than there was. I mean, even two, three years ago, I would talk to coaches about guys who had spiked curveballs in college, and they say, oh, yeah, but they're going to have to ditch that in the pro game. And that's starting to change.
5: I want to ask you a question, Kyle, about a pitcher who has a good basically everything, which is Jacob deGrom.
2: Yeah, Jacob deGrom is, is certainly another example of a guy who's gotten better in the majors he's kind of a funny story so back in 2018 at the all-star game I had talked to Jacob deGrom a little bit and one of the things he talked about was because he wasn't a top draft pick he wasn't a top rated prospect at any point now we at Baseball America did have him in the Mets top 10 but he was never someone that was top of any top 100 lists or anything like that He talked about that kind of coming up in that low-pressure environment, not having all eyes on him, not having everyone scrutinizing his every move, not having all the pressures that come with being a top-tier prospect, kind of allowed him to just develop at his own pace. He had a couple injuries, had Tommy John surgery, didn't feel like he had to rush it back, and really kind of grow into the pitcher he became without feeling like, oh, I have to be up in the majors by this age. If I don't, I'm considered a bust, anything like that. I mean, he came up in the majors, his rookie year. He was 26 years old. He'd been in the minors for quite a while. And when he was at Las Vegas and AAA, people liked him, but certainly no one saw this. And again, I just thought it was interesting that he talked about how that low-pressure environment as a prospect really helped him become who he became. And I had that story ready to go. But unfortunately, later that year, while covering the World Series in Boston, uh, someone, uh, another writer who shall not be named spilled their uh, their drink all over the table and sizzled my tape recorder in the process. And it was a rookie mistake on my part, not transcribing the quotes as soon as I got them. I just kept them on my tape recorder, saving it for the end of the year because I thought Jacob DeGrom might win the Cy Young Award, which he ultimately did. But the uh, great quotes for that story are lost, uh, lost to the heavens after uh, that tape recorder died and uh, not a great death
5: well and and I would have been there, not at the table, though I can say in all honesty that it was not me, so i 'm curious now which reporter ruined the uh, the great quotes
2: i I shall leave them nameless, but i 'm still sad about it
5: <laughs> no that that is the best way to be. In last week's episode, Andy Freed, broadcaster for the Tampa Bay Rays, had an appointment to get a second vaccination, so we had to cut a little bit early. We're going to do the same here because I'm expecting a phone call from a player five minutes ago. But I do want to bring up, Zach Gallen was mentioned by one of the two of you a little while ago. He was traded for Jazz Chisholm I will put a few years ago. I will put you both on the spot. Who got the better of that trade?
2: Wow. Um, I think it was a pretty even trade because both these guys have a chance to be standouts. Both were top 100 prospects. I think we've seen it's hard to find true front of the rotation starter types as much as not that you know great electric shortstoppers are all that common either. Um, I probably do give the edge to Gallon at this point, but they're both great players. And if someone wanted to argue for Chisholm, I, I wouldn't think they're crazy.
6: I'll go out on a limb the other way. I'll say Chisholm just because I think he's a lot of fun. I love the blue hair. I think they're pretty close. Maybe the hair puts him over the top. <laughs> and I will not be a
5: tiebreaker here. I think they're absolutely wonderful players. I would have been tempted to say Gallon until watching a few Marlins games recently and thinking that, man, Jazz Chisholm can, can really hit. And not just because he took DeGrom DP. He, he can play baseball. Hey, guys, thank you very much for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, I should probably answer my phone and perhaps we will have another of these conversations in the future.
2: Absolutely. Happy to join you anytime. Thanks for having me. Sounds
6: great, David. Thanks for having me.
5: And thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio.
7: Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. Earlier this week, the Pioneer League, which is now a low-level independent league as opposed to being a rookie-level affiliated league, which it was before the minor league contraction, announced a slate of rule changes that included one particularly eye-catching rule. The league has decided that in lieu of extra innings, each game that's tied after nine will be decided via what's called the knockout rule. Each team will designate one player to receive five pitches from either a teammate or a coach and see how many home runs he hits, and whichever team has the player with the more home runs, wins the game, with successive rounds to continue this until a decision is reached. The league also announced some other rules, uh, including a designated pinch runner and a check swing rule. But it was the home run derby idea that really caught my eye, because this idea has been in the ether seemingly for at least a decade. I see it a lot on social media, especially late at nights when extra inning games start to drag. Uh, And when I went looking for it, one particular tweet came to my attention, and that was one from colleague Dan Zimborski who wrote, this is back in 2018, when the minor leagues first introduced the runner-on-second rule that had at that point been used in international play, I'd take a home run derby to settle extra innings over starting with a runner-on-second. That's how bad it is. Well, that was typically emphatic for Dan, and so I thought it would be a fun conversation here to bring him in and and talk about this rule and the various experimental rules around the minor leagues in general. Hello, Dan. Hey, Jay. How's it going today? (laughs) It's going all right. What are your thoughts on this rule with the benefit of three years of distance since that tweet and now having seen just how the uh, extra innings runner on second rule works?
3: When I proclaimed that, there was a little bit of hyperbole for effect, as as I <laughs> tend to do from time to time. But when I look back on it, it's not something I'm actually going to disavow. I think it's odder in a way, obviously, than a runner on second. It's, it's completely different than a normal baseball game. But I think on some level... I like there being something odd and obviously different than taking something we already know in a normal way and alter it in a strange way. I I think at least you say, hey, the home run derby part, this is something very different. But putting the runner on second base to start an extra inning is kind of more invasive in a way because it's taking a normal part of the sport and just adding something completely alien to it. So – well, I would prefer just to have normal extra innings. I actually think I would slightly still prefer a home run derby. Huh, that's interesting.
7: Yeah, I I don't know how, how exactly how I feel about it. I you know, when when I wrote about it for Fangraphs uh, uh on Wednesday, I did not uh, come forth with a blistering hot take. I'm I, I'm a little bit more open-minded about this mostly because uh, this is not being done in conjunction with Major League Baseball. This is an independent league that is operating with that pioneer spirit, trying something for the benefit of his fans. And having grown up going to some Pioneer League games and even going to some uh, as recently as uh, a few years ago, I grew up in Salt Lake City. The uh, Ogden Raptors have long been up the road, and the Salt Lake Trappers were briefly uh, in lieu of a Triple A team back when I was in high school. They even set a uh, professional baseball record with 29 straight wins. So this stuff is near and dear to me, but I know that very few people at minor league games. You know, especially the ones that are taking the kids to the game, they're not gonna stay for extra innings. So you have to wrap this up pretty quickly, uh, if you're if you're gonna get people to stay to the end. And so a home run derby in this context makes at least a little bit of sense. You know the, these indie level teams, they can't call up a pitcher from the next from the next level, you know, and get him tomorrow if they've if they've blown out their pitching staff in a 17 inning game or even a 12 inning game. You know, so you you got to settle things pretty quickly. And the fact that you could have a coach throw batting practice in here, I think, expands the palette a little bit because you've there's always got to be one coach on a team that's that that's good at throwing batting practice. So you know i think the main reservation for this is is that uh, you're turning you know what is a sport involving many skills into a you know skills competition involving one skill in particular and deciding that but you know the the purest in me was already somewhat offended by the the accounting disaster that is the current extra innings rule, the fact that that guy didn't get to second on his own volition that he will count as an unearned run and that it you know it broke baseball reference and and has broken many <laughs> many other many other systems i mean i you know Sean Foreman and company do do a great job and 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 likewise our own David appleman they got enough trouble without dealing with this. Um, so you know, take it off the board. Call it you know, just the way that the uh, soccer shootouts uh, or penalty kicks are. You know, you just report it. You know, it was a tie, and then this team won in overtime or in in penalties or whatever. You know, five to three, and that's uh, and, and and that's enough here.
3: So that that's kind of my feeling on the matter. I think for me, it's that it could affect Major League Baseball is what makes it the big deal. I think in the minor leagues, I mean, minor league teams are not great. Let's just say financially. And so anything that makes a better fan experience, no matter how silly, right. I tend to be for it. I actually thought that Tim Tebow, as long as he wasn't displacing an actual prospect, I think there was nothing wrong with having Tim Tebow in the minors, simply because he did bring out some fans to see him. And for a minor league team with with very tight margins, I mean, that's fine. I just I didn't want to see Tim Tebow in the majors. And right. I, I don't want to see, you know, a home run derby or, you know, our current runner on second rule in the majors is as, as long as I knew that it would stay in the minors, then I'd be like, yeah, that's 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 fine. But when it comes to Major League Baseball, I'm protective. I'm like a tiger mom, sure. like protecting her cubs. It's like, no, don't don't mess with. The big thing, I mean, yeah, it's it's just a situation where it's just, I don't like it, even beyond anything personal, like saying I'd have to change zips or anything, I just don't like it, maybe I just don't like change anymore, I'm old. Well,
7: you know, I think it's. I think a lot of us feel, and I'm certainly among them, that you know, putting these rules into place last year, like the seven inning double header games, the runner on second rule, when it was clear there was going to be a lot of rescheduled games and expediting makeup games in order to complete a short schedule was the order of the day. I didn't mind those rules. You know, there, there was a little bit of novelty at first with the extra innings rule. I didn't dislike it as much as I thought I would. But now, now that we're going a full 162 games, and that we don't have the degree of, of of cancellations and outbreaks, thankfully, and you know, hopefully, that situation is going to get better as 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 the you know as, as teams get increasingly vaccinated. Uh, these rules just feel superfluous and and it feels you know they feel more encroaching and and that there's a certain danger that the union will accept them in exchange, you know it, it, within the the framework of negotiating the the next collective bargaining agreement because these are relatively small potatoes compared to the financial issues and if Rob Banford and the owners agree to give them something of what they want, they'll stick with these dumb
3: formats that to me is is my big fear but but you know low level and ideally do what you want. Yeah, one of the uh the very first time I was on the radio wasn't as an adult. I actually called mm-hmm. into a uh, Baltimore uh, talk radio, uh, when Josh Lewin was in Baltimore. I was I was a teenager at this point. My voice had barely changed. I mean, someone would say, "Dan, your voice hasn't changed yet," but it was actually higher pitched before. And mm. I called in to complain about the wild card that was being proposed. Oh boy. And you know how people look back and regret things they say when they were a kid? Like, I wasn't as open-minded. I still I still don't like the wild card in the end. I, I never but, liked the idea of a team that was second place over 162 games getting another crack at the apple. So while a lot of ways I've matured, I'm still with 15-year-old Dan. Calling in and not liking the wild card. So I guess I've always had a history of being very resistant towards large changes at the major league level. <laughs>
7: Fair enough. So the, the at various levels of the minor leagues, we're seeing a lot of uh, experimental rules being being tried here. Uh, rules regarding uh, the defensive positioning, the size of bases, which I guess generally affects the distance between bases, although like microscopically in the grand scheme of things. Pickoff rules, step-off rules, a pitch timer, uh, and in the Atlantic League and, and the low-A Southeast League, an electronic strike zone. Are there any of these rules that you're particularly... Interested in seeing how they go because you think they would work at the major league level or is
3: it all your your fear of change is just leading you to uh, want to shun them all? Well, I really want robot balls and strikes to be a thing. I think. People will always say, you know, umpire is a part of the game. Framing is a part of the game. But while I agree for a lot of these kinds of, say, abilities, I don't really like it when it comes to rules. Because essentially, our ball and strike system is essentially an an inefficiency of calling the rule correctly. And I think in the end, you want the actual rules of the sport to be consistent. And a robot ump... For, you know, for determining where the ball is in the strike zone, I think it's still the best way to do it. People are always like it's a difficult technological feat, but it really isn't these days. I mean, we can sequence the gene- human genome down to every last bit. We can, we can, you know, track satellite tracking and everything. We we can tell you the spin of a pitch these days, but I don't think that compared to these problems, figuring out where a ball is. Over a Pentagon is that difficult a thing to do, and I'd love to see it work, and I think that to get umpires out of this, it also reduces some of the, I guess, fighting between umpires and players and managers, and while I love Earl Weaver, I'd prefer like the call to be right from the first.
7: Yeah, you know, look, I think eventually the the day for for a robot uh, technology to call balls and strikes will come. Uh, I've been leading the bandwagon since my days at at Baseball Prospectus, which means we're talking about at least uh, 9 or 10 years now, uh robot umps now somewhere there's a gif of me out there with that uh, flashing. But, you know, I'm I think the tension and the 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 fretting over this rule has to do with the fact that already the strike zone is not called and, and and this has been you know at least as long as I've been watching baseball, the rule book strike zone is not the de facto strike zone. The umpires will give a pitcher something that's on the black if the pitcher has shown he can hit that spot consistently. There are you know distortions and, and with the asymmetry of, of of where the ball is going and how far behind the catcher the umpire is. There's obviously there's a lot of guesswork uh, and framing. You know proper pitch framing only kind of amplifies the the amount of guesswork because you're making a split second decision that's that's based on physical cues that can kind of juke the umpire and and you know and and convince him that that what he saw wasn't where the pitch was thrown. So if they could I think if you are going to to implement robot umpires, I think you're going to have to be realistic and, and about re- redefining the strike zone as well, you know, particularly the lower bound of the strike zone and 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 the uh the margins on the plate because if you just try to measure it with as it's as it's drawn out, you're going to have a lot of dissatisfaction once that's implemented. And I think we already saw that a little bit in the brief experimentation in the Atlantic League in
3: 2019. David Lorola talks to a lot more pictures than I do, but but the guys I talk to, the general belief I mean it's not universal, is that the biggest complaint is consistency more than right. where it is. As long as players know what to expect, they can, you know work on their game around those parameters. But when it's arbitrary, it's difficult because where a ball is and where a strike is, it's not really a judgment call. Now, you know, check swings are a judgment call. I understand that. But the actual location isn't. I mean, you look at the NFL and the NFL refereeing, there are judgment calls for things like holding and such, but where the end zone is, where the first down line right. is, that's it's pretty much a, a a set number. A ref doesn't say, "Okay, this team they only have to go nine point five yards on a first down because they've shown they can establish the run, and we want to reward right. that." That's right. that's absolutely absurd, and and NFL fans and the sports books would go out and you know flip over tables, flip over cars in the streets if that happened. I I think that. You still have umpires for things that require discretion, and there are a lot of things that require interpretation, but I don't think this is one thing that does need to have interpretation. Just just get where the ball is right, and a lot of the rest will take care of itself. Right. Fair enough. Okay. I just Before we go, I just wanted to take your temperature
7: on a couple of these other rules that, that are in play. There was, first of all, also in the Pioneer League slate, one of the rules that's, that's in there is uh, uh, is a revised check swing rule, because you mentioned that where the batter can call for an appeal from a base umpire instead of just just the pitcher and the catcher. I think that might actually do a little bit to trim strikeouts,
3: but I don't know. What do you think about that one? I think that's fine because it it goes in with what I said with the with the uh robots, robot umps, that it's about getting the call right. Right. And I think there's nothing wrong with having everyone available to have appeal. I mean you don't want to slow down the game too much. I think that. It doesn't need to have a lot of deliberation, just a quick appeal to first. I mean, defendants and plaintiffs can appeal to a to a higher court. So so should hitters, I think, in the end.
7: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. What about the defensive positioning rules that are being used? I guess it's double A, where everybody has to be uh, on the infield, both feet on the infield. And then in the second half, they might have to be uh, two infielders on each side of the bag.
3: What would happen with one of those classic 80s artificial turf fields where they just have the lines? Yeah, well, infielders, right. <laughs> they can't play anywhere. <laughs> I'm not crazy about that because it kind of feels like it would kind of move baseball towards where we have an illegal formation penalty. Well, we, we do have that in other sports. I mean, and we do have that in baseball. I mean, you have to
7: have, you know, eight eight men in the field to play plus the plus the catcher. So, you know, you can't, if I'm not mistaken,
3: you can't like, you know, position
7: the shortstop in foul territory or something like that.
3: Sure. But I, I I would like, it's easier to count guys than... I like players and, and and teams to be able to have this flexibility for how they choose to to play players because right. you know the, the positions, you know, weren't handed down from from stone tablets where everybody stands. It's just kind of developed that way over the years. I think that a better approach that you can deal a lot with shifting if you have game rules that more incentivize putting balls in play. Because the more incentive there is to put the balls in play, the more incentive there is for batters to take an approach that might cost them power or, or something, and that would be something that would go against the the shifts, because people are always like, why, why don't they just bunt? It's like, that's a hard skill to do. But, right. you know, if there's more of an incentive through the game as a whole to put the ball in play, maybe you do see more, you know, little opposite thinkers against the shift. So I think that would probably take care of the shifts that's not needed. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's just not my cup of tea.
7: Yeah, I have mixed feelings on that. I think, you know, the more I read about the way that shifting changes batter and pitcher behavior, you know, such that, uh, as Russell Carlton has shown at, at Baseball Perspectives, you know, pitchers actually walk more guys when, the, when, they're, when they're shifting behind them. The effect on batting average on balls in play is disproportionately obviously stacked towards lefties. It's a more complicated thing than just who stands where because there's a lot of psychology involved in terms of, you know, what the batter wants to do and what the pitcher wants to do. Speaking of incentivizing ball in play. The other the other big rule change that's in store is in the second half of the season in the Atlantic League they're gonna they're going to move the pitching distance back a foot. I worry about the the potential for injuries there among players you know who have since high school been working with uh, sixty foot six, uh, and the fact that I think we're going to get a lot of control problems because balls move differently when you give them that extra foot of distance, particularly breaking balls and and. You know, for as much as the fastballs uh, might lose steam, I think you're going to get some fraction of the pitchers are going to apply psychological pressure to themselves to throw it that much harder to try to make up for that, and then you know, which which I think increases the injury risk. And I think in general the, the concerns about injury risk are there, even though the ASMI, Dr. Andrews and Dr. Fleissig, the preeminent experts, seem to think that uh, this won't be that big a deal.
3: Yeah, I, I I'm hopeful because those those experts say that it won't cause more injuries, but it is the kind of thing because of the the negative consequences you do want to test it a lot before you implement in, in the major leagues i think something like the slightly larger bases in triple a that's not something you need to test extensively it's it's probably going to work fine it's it's right. not that gross a change you're not likely to see a whole bunch more injuries hopefully even fewer injuries because there's less competition for the the real estate that makes up the base but for something with the mound going back you have to kind of be careful because it's not good for baseball if you start injuring like Jake DeGrom and and Garrett Cole because they're all trying to throw even harder. Uh, that, that would not be good for baseball. I think it's possible it might just be fine, but you have to you know give it some time. It's not like banning the spitball where they could grandfather in old players. You can't really grandfather in right. pitch distance. That would be really weird to have two rubbers out there, one for the for – the, <laughs> previous yeah. players and one I, th- I think
7: the problem I, the problem I have with it, you know, getting back to that study by by Andrews and Fleissig is that they based it on five maximum effort fastballs. I mean, you know, we're we're talking we're talking about you know I don't know that that's really representative because you know the average pitcher, a starting pitcher, throws you know twenty times that many pitches with a lot of breaking balls, and and you know none of that was really accounted for. You just got, you know, these college pitchers just chucking it up there. And, and yeah, if it's 96 or 90, you know, if, if 96 turns into 94 with the extra foot, you know, whatever, no big deal. But, you know, if a pitch moves an extra six inches and a guy is, is, you know, is is doing it 100 times and trying to get that extra distance, I think the cumulative effect could, you could find something. So that was my concern about
3: that one. The good news is that, I mean, James Andrews, Dr. Andrews, he does realize that it would be a small sample of pictures he looked at. And what it comes down to in the end is uh, Andrews knows more about fixing elbows than I know about anything that ever happened, (laughs) even about myself. I think he knows how to fix elbows better than I know where things in my house are.
7: (laughs) Good point. All right. Well, I think for as much as we batted around this, these rule changes and the, the derby and, and all that, we could probably bat them around for another hour. But this podcast is, is getting overstuffed as it is. So thanks, Dan. Uh, this was fun to talk to you about this stuff. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to check out that Fangraphs newsletter over on the homepage and keep an eye on our Twitch channel, Fangraphs Live. Jason Martinez is streaming the Roster Resource Show live on Wednesday evenings at 4.30 Pacific, and all of our not-live content can be found on our Twitch channel for free. We will be back next week with another podcast episode. Have a good weekend.